Good morning, everybody. For those of you I haven't met yet, my name's Dave, one of the pastors here on staff. In the month of March, we did a discipleship survey. And for three weeks in a row, we asked you to grab your phones and to follow along. It took about five minutes, and we wanted to know what it is that's going on in your lives. How can we better serve you as a church? And a month later, we finally have the results of that. And so I thought, close that loop a little bit and tell you what's happening, what's going on. If you love numbers, this will be right in your wheelhouse. If you don't love numbers, I will hold and hype it up so it will be part of your wheelhouse. Here's what you need to know. Average age of the responder is 44 years old. I find this number fascinating because if you think about it, the youngest you can be is 13 years old. The oldest, who knows, somewhere probably in your 90s. We have 175 kids on average upstairs during kids' church. They're not part of this. So an average age of 44, that's great. That's a baseline for us. We'll be continuing to ask this week after week. This next one is really encouraging. 4.5%, basically 1 in 20, are either seeking or non-Christian. And the reason that's so big is the national average is 2.5%. So over the last years, we've been talking about an inescapable mission, an invitational culture. We're, we're really passionate about evangelism and leading people to Jesus, you, the church family, are inviting people in. And hopefully, if you're one of those 1 in 20 who are sitting here, you're watching online, uh, we've created an environment that it feels warm and welcoming and not an intimidating place to be. This next one, also fascinating. 33% of you, one in three, have been attending Ellerslie less than two years. That's incredible. This past week was my second anniversary as the lead pastor. That means one in three have no idea who the pastor was before I got here. That's crazy to me. One more. 25% um, say they can come to church once a week. And so now we get into, well, how does this survey, Dave, how does us spending five minutes answering 20 questions or whatever it is, how does this impact how we do ministry? A couple of things. Um, for the worship planning team, um, Colton's our worship pastor, Nathan's our technical director, you see David, myself, and Joel. It means how do we make Sundays as valuable as we possibly can because a bunch of you aren't going to show up again all week long. The other thing we're going to do, we're talking about it, we're not promising, talking about it, is everything that's old is new again. And, and we're talking about, um, starting in the fall, having one night a week where it's the whole church family. So basically, we have five different adult groups, we have something for teenagers, something for kids, and the nursery is open, so that if you say it's really hard for us to get to church a second time in a week, we want to make that as easy as possible. Last one. Our church is 55% women, 45% men. Depending on the surveys you look at, um, whether they're national surveys or um, uh, church pew research type of surveys, um, we're either the average or slightly better than average. But it leaves the question, well, why, why do women love coming to church more than men? So let me give you the worst evangelistic pitch you have heard in years. Hey, friend, would you like to come to church with me? We're going to stand up, we're going to sing a bunch of songs, and then our balding pastor is going to talk about a 2,000-year-old book, and then we're going to have fellowship in the foyer where we can share our feelings. <laughs> and your coworker goes, thanks, but no thanks. I'm good. 
But it leads us to kind of wonder, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And think about the last couple uh, sermon series that we've done. Starting in January, we did uh, Hard Questions. And I think this was a really interesting sermon series that most of you seem to really enjoy. We're talking about, well, what does the Bible say about suffering? What does the Bible say about sex? What does the Bible uh, um, have its relationship with science or with not seeing who God is? What does that look like? And I think we go, that, that's something that I can get used to. Or we have this um, passage in Luke where we go through, I think it was an eight-week series that we did in Luke, and we go, okay, we're going to journey to Jerusalem, and we're going to look at Jesus' teaching, and man, does he unpack what that looks like and how great Jesus is. That's something I can really get behind. And then it's post-Easter, and we go, the God of love, that's sweet. And for men, we might be thinking, okay, well, how long is 1 John? Five chapters? Okay, five weeks? Nope. It's going to be a nine-week sermon series on love. Nine weeks where we talk about our feelings and get a little bit more in touch with ourselves. And you think, okay, well, how does that draw us in? But when we look at the scriptures, we see this idea of love coming through over and over and over again. Perhaps the most well-known Bible verse in all of scripture, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Or you skip a little bit ahead to John 13, one of my personal favorite verses on love. Um, a new command I give you, says Jesus to his disciples, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, the whole world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Or you get into Romans and the Apostle Paul is talking to the church in Rome and he says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Or this beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians 13, I was at a wedding yesterday, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not rude, it is not proud, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Or my favorite for the parents in the room, Revelation chapter 3. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Somehow my kids don't think that's nearly as fun as I do, but it seems to get the point across. So what do we do with this? But whether you're a male or whether you're a female, think about your closest friends. Think about the friends where when you've had a rough day, you can say, hey, can I call you? I've just had a really challenging time at work. Or you think, uh, I just want to get together with a, uh, and go on a double date with some friends. And you go to a restaurant and you just laugh together. And you feel like this is the group of people that you can hang out with. Or you just talk about somebody and say, man, you wouldn't believe the day I had. I got a promotion at work and the kids are doing great at school. And I've got a grand new grandbaby at home. These people are your closest friends. They make you feel safe. They make you feel accepted. They make you feel loved. And over the next number of weeks, as we go through the book of 1 John and understanding who this God of love is, we hope that you're drawn in because the world is transformed by how we love one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the whole counsel of scripture. Thank you for what we learn um, when Moses gives us the law. Thank you for all the historical books. Thank you for what the prophets bring to the table. Thank you for the book of Luke and the other gospels. And thank you, Lord, for these letters. May it be a chance for us to see through the whole counsel of Scripture the wonderful way that you are speaking to every single one of us this morning. God, we pray that my words would fall down so that your words would be lifted up and that we would be impacted by the love of Christ so much so that it flows through us to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.
If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to 1 John chapter 1. Not to be confused with the Gospel of John. So if you're brand new to church, um, you can find John in the table of contents. Or you can start at the back of your Bible, Revelation, and slowly flip backwards and you'll hit 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We'd love to have you join us there. Um, if you're new, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the first numbers. So we are in 1st John chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to be looking at a little bit of that together. So as you flip there, it's a little bit of hard book to find a couple of things. There's 27 books in the New Testament, and there's only four authors that talk uh, that actually write more than one book. The Apostle Paul wrote almost half of the New Testament. He wrote 13 of the 27 books. Um, the uh, uh, author Luke, he wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Peter wrote a couple books, and then John wrote five. He wrote uh, the gospel that um, bears his name. He wrote the book of Revelation. Then he writes these three letters near the end of the New Testament. And so as you're flipping there, for those of you who enjoy taking notes, we're going to start with this. He talks about embracing Jesus. This is 1 John chapter 1. If you like following along word for word, I preach from the ESV. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it, testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy might be complete. When we open the New Testament, there's two major sections that take place. There's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts. Um, these are uh, talk about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and then the book of Acts basically takes off right from there, and it's a continuation. What are the disciples going to do now that Jesus has gone into heaven, and they're on their own? Following the book of Acts, we have um, Romans to Revelation. This is typically called the letters. Another fancier word is the epistles. And most of these epistles um, start the same way. The apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome or to the church in Philippi or to the church in Galatia or Corinth. Um, then you get to uh, um, the other authors and they're looking at Peter, who's writing to the church who's persecuted, or James, the diaspora, meaning they have been um, sent out from Jerusalem and around the place. But James is totally different. Look at how he starts his, gospel, uh, his letter. Uh, I said James, John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is radically different than how everybody else starts their letters. For Peter, for James, for Paul, they all say, we are an apostle, we are an apostle, we are an apostle. James is diving right in, and it's because his letter really isn't a letter at all. It's actually a sermon. And so he starts by writing to this group of churches saying, this is who I am, this is who God is, and this is what I want you to know. And it's this beautiful introduction that draws us into what God is trying to do. Now, um, many people might start a sermon by saying, hey, open your Bibles to 1 John. We're going to be looking at it. Here's the three points. There's nothing wrong with this. My favorite preacher does it all the time, never has an introduction. But the reason that I have an introduction almost every week is twofold. One, I want you to get to know me personally. So today you learned, hey, Dave likes numbers. Good for him. But there's also a hook there's a reason to be drawn in. We're talking for the next number of weeks about love. Why should I care? Why should I listen to it? 
And so John, writing to a group of churches, is saying, here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to know. It's not a cold open. It's helping them understand the beauty, the majesty, the glory, the greatness of God. Why is he saying that? Because there's a bunch of false teachers walking around who are helping the people recognize that Jesus isn't at all who people say he is. And so this is making John quite upset. John is about 90 years old. He spent the, uh, the bulk of uh, a number of years with Jesus. And he's walking around saying to these house churches, what these false teachers are saying isn't true at all. Jesus really did come in the flesh, contrary to what these false teachers are saying. The false teachers are asking, did Jesus really die for your sins? And John is saying, yes, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes and I saw his resurrected body. These false teachers are saying, you want to love your enemies? Haven't you read the Old Testament? They killed all their enemies. But John is saying, I saw Jesus. I heard him teach every day for three years. I witnessed him die for the sins of all of humanity. I saw him rise from the grave. I touched his physical body. Listen to me. And when you read these opening verses, you're going to see a couple pronouns, we and you. The we is referring to the apostles. He's saying, we are eyewitnesses. We saw exactly what happened. We have seen and heard and touched and been present with Jesus. The you are those of us in this room, the next generation of Christians. In other words, he's saying to them, um, don't listen to the false teaching. Embrace Jesus. Imagine someone came up to you and said, allow me to offer you some financial advice. And you say, well, um, what are your, uh, what's your background? Do you have any schooling or anything in this? Yes, I took a one-night seminar at the local community college. And you might go, I'm not sure I want to listen to you. Another guy walks up and he goes, oh, I've actually spent the last 20 years as a VP working for Warren Buffett. Would you like to have some investment advice? And we say, yes, please. The whole reason for listening to this message comes in verse 4. We are writing these things so that your joy might be complete. The purpose of this proclamation is not just a forgiveness of sins, which is the bare minimum for salvation, but to experience a rich and beautiful and joyful message that comes from hearing God. When the gospel is proclaimed, lives are changed. When lives are changed, we become more joyful. When that joy is present, we begin to see God is at work in people's lives. Joy that we are freed from sin and become children to God. Joy that we are invited into relationship with God and the church family. And John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, not just one of the 12, but one of the inner three, who is said in scripture to be the one that Jesus loved. He's passionate about this idea of joy. We read in John chapter 15, I've told you this so that, your joy might, um, so that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be complete. One chapter later in um, chapter 16. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive. And your joy will be complete. So John is writing to the churches. And he's talking to us 2,000 years later. Embrace Jesus. See what he has to offer you. The second thing he says. I want you to walk with Jesus. Chapter 1. Picking up in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
We say we have not sinned. We make him out to be a liar. And his word has no part in our lives. In the scriptures, this idea of light and darkness is really important imagery. The sermon that John is writing in these five chapters is a little bit unique in style. It's very circular in reasoning. He'll talk about light and then he'll go off to darkness only to bring it back to light. He'll talk more about light only to talk about how it impacts our life and then come back to it. And he wants us to understand the beautiful imagery of light in the first chapter of the book and love throughout the entirety of the book. In the scriptures, light and darkness have important imagery. The light refers to biblical truth, to being people of character and holiness and purity. Darkness refers to falsehood, sinful practices, and wrongdoing. If you were to take another look at verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. To walk with Jesus means to acknowledge that I have sinned. To acknowledge that the only person to forgive that sin is, is Jesus. And to work at putting that sinful nature behind us. These false teachers, while saying they walk with God, do not acknowledge their sin and are therefore representing a, difficult, a different salvation entirely. John is concerned that the church may be doing the exact same thing. Not acknowledging their sin when that's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Well, before I became a pastor... I was living in Calgary and uh, just wrapping up my school. And um, between the end of school and finding a job, I was working at a couple different restaurants. And when I was working at these restaurants, uh, people knew that I went to school, that I was studying theology, that eventually I wanted to be a pastor. And I wanted to have a good witness. I wanted to share with people that this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so we would talk and hang out before the shift and after the shift. We would um, go to parties together. I would spend time with them and hopefully be a good influence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus. And then one day something happened. Have you ever been around a coworker that nobody really likes? There's always one of those around, right? And so here we are working at the restaurant. We're in between shifts and um, uh, we're setting up between breakfast and lunch. And somebody says, hey, you know, um, I am a Christian too. And I looked at her and I thought, no, don't tell anybody that. You're bitter. You're angry. You're mean. Nobody likes you. But she didn't recognize it. She didn't recognize that nobody wanted to spend time with her. And it was this interesting point where some of the coworkers would say, well, Dave, why do you act one way and this other coworker act a different way? And there's this time where we recognize there's sin in our lives and we have to acknowledge the sin and we have to tell Jesus about our sin and then we need to repent of our sin and then ask him to help us overcome our sin. And these false teachers aren't doing that at all. They're saying, don't worry about your sin. It'll get forgiven if you even sin at all in the first place. Now, I'm not expecting that any of us are perfect. I know I'm not. You can talk to my wife and kids. But if we never acknowledge our sin, if we never ask forgiveness, if we never go to the people we have hurt and say, sorry for the way I've acted towards you, then how are we showing the God, the God of the world to the people around us? If we truly know the God of love, if we're walking in the light, if we've embraced Jesus, then it'll be different. It'll be an evidence in our life that we have met with Jesus. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. By walking in the light, we have deep human and divine fellowship. I don't have a slide for that. If we walk in the light, we have deep human and divine fellowship. There's this growth that happens that as we grow closer to God, we start to look more like God. So here's the first part of the application early on in the message today. How are you growing closer to God? 
how are you growing closer to God? The best way to do this is, is through Bible reading. And, and some of you read the Bible regularly, and that's wonderful. And some of you are trying to figure out, well, what does it mean to read the Bible? I don't know if I have time to read the Bible. What does that, I don't even know where to begin. So if you like taking notes, pick a time, pick a plan, pick a place. For those of you who exercise and want to start exercising, it's the exact same thing. Pick a time, pick a plan, pick a place. So some of you are early morning people and you want to spend time with God before you go to work. Maybe you can open up your Bible and read a, a chapter of the scripture while you have a bowl of cereal. Others of you like to do that right before you go to bed and you think, man, it's been a hard day. I would love to just have some time, some quiet time with God before I, uh, the day comes to an end. Others of you, it might be the perfect time during an Oilers intermission. Because we seem to have the lead going into the second period. So if you can pray that we keep the lead in the future, that would be great. The average, amen, I like that. <laughs> the average pastor, not the average Christian, the average pastor spends 11 minutes a day in scripture and prayer. It's not very much. An NHL intermission is 15 minutes, just saying. <laughs> Pick a time. Pick a place. Are you going to do that um, at the end of the night in bed? And you're going to prop yourself up against your headboard and just say, okay, God, for the next 10 minutes, for the next 15 minutes, I'm going to spend some time with you. Are you going to do it first thing in the morning and it's going to be at the, um, uh, on your favorite couch in the living room or perhaps at the uh, dining room table? Or are you going to do it at the office because nobody else is at the office that early? Pick a place and finally pick a plan. If you just open up your Bible or play Bible roulette, it doesn't work that way. What is the plan you're going to take? Maybe you go through the book of Luke and you think, oh, we've got some sermons about that. That'll be helpful. We have some great ways of connecting with God on our website, or we have something called Right Now Media. For some of you, you might be thinking, Dave, I, I, I struggle with reading the Bible. Are there other ways to connect with God? Absolutely. Maybe after supper, you want to go on a walk and you just spend time praying and thanking God and reflecting about the day. Maybe you enjoy listening to worship music and while you get ready in the morning or you drive to or from work, you're listening to some good music and just making sure your heart and your mind is in the right place. Maybe you enjoy listening to a podcast or sermon. Um, we have something on our website called Right Now Media. The church picks up the tab. It's basically the Netflix of Christian resources. It is fantastic on all sorts of books of the Bible, on all sorts of themes, on all sorts of topics. And I know a few different people in our church, when they're getting ready in the morning, that's um, what they do is they have that playing on their phone or their tablet or their laptop in the background. What are we going to do to draw closer to God? The bottom line is this. The more time we spend with God, the more our lives are evidence of a life spent with God. And this is what John is talking about. How do we show the world around us what God looks like? I'm going to put verse 7 back on the screen again. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Just a moment ago, I said this and I'll repeat it. By walking in the light, we have deep human and divine fellowship as we grow closer to God and to one another. Um, I'm the oldest of three kids. I have twin sisters 16 months younger than me. So if you are a mom or a dad, think about what I just said. My mom had three kids in 16 months. Life was full. But it also means that um, I don't have a brother to connect with. I have some um, male cousins, but we're not close at all. I'd see them two or three times a year. Cousins, if you're watching, sorry about that. <laughs> 
But it means that wherever I was, born and raised in Edmonton, but I lived in Regina, I've lived in Calgary, I've lived in BC, wherever I was, I had to create good male friendships because I didn't have a brother, I don't have a cousin that I'm very close with. And there's something really special when you have people that you can journey through life with. I mentioned it a little bit earlier. There's something about calling a friend and saying, like, I've had a really rough day. Can I just talk to you about it for a little bit? Can we laugh? Can we talk? Can we talk about sports or pop culture? Can you pray for me or do something of that sort? There's something really special about saying, hey, friend, we haven't hung out for a while. Let's go um, play golf. Let's go hang out for coffee. Let's go on a walk together and just talk about real life. There's something special where God is saying when two Christians get together, it's not just talking about pop culture or sports or your local hobbies. There's something about getting together and talking about how the gospel radically changes our lives. Now, I mentioned the statistic at the beginning of the sermon. Um, One out of three of you, one out of three responders are brand new to Ellerslie in the last two years. So how do you get connected? A few ways to do this. One, you can start serving somewhere. I know our production team would love to have you be part of their team. It takes about 12 people every week to put this online and to have volume right now and the screens behind me. Um, Our first impressions team to welcome people in just hopefully as well as you've been welcomed in and to show them the love of Jesus. Maybe you want to be upstairs. Um, Our two biggest, our two second biggest teams combined aren't as big as Pastor Kelsey's team. 160 people help serve our kids on a regular monthly basis. Maybe you'd like to do that. Maybe you'd like to join a small group. You see Pastor David every week um, on the screen behind me. Pastor Joel was praying earlier. They would love to connect with you about being part of a small group. Or maybe you want to get together with two other ladies and just talk about some of the um, life and challenges and joys that life has to bring. For some of you, it might mean just sticking around the foyer a little bit longer, connecting with somebody, asking what brought them to Ellerslie, how long they've been here, and if they'd like to maybe grab a coffee one day. But what John is saying is when we're changed by God, when we have deep relationships with God and with other people, our lives are transformed and we show the evidence of God around us. Now to verse 9. If you grew up in church, it's one of those verses you may have committed to memory years ago. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As followers of Jesus, we have to confess our sins to receive salvation, but then we also continually confess our sins um, to maintain fellowship with God and with one another. Think about this. Preaching is hard work. Each of my sermons is about 5,000 words. And so I'm going to parse it afterwards going, oh, I wish I would have said that differently. But all of you have hard work, right? Parenting is hard work. Construction is hard work. Farming is hard work. Going to school is hard work. Being the leader of your organization is hard work. Managing people is hard work. Hitting your sales targets is hard work. And most of us are going to work every day or being mom and dad every day. And we're saying, God, I am giving you my best. And that's what God is asking. He's not asking for perfection. He's saying, will you give me your best? And then when we fall short, we confess our sins. Say, God, I have fallen short. I have missed the mark. My life does not glorify you the way I was hoping or expecting it would be. We go to our friends, our coworkers, our family members and say, I'm sorry for what I said. I'm sorry for not doing what I should have done. Will you forgive me? But we give God our best. Look at the second half of that verse. The reason we have joy is because we know he forgives us and that's the kind of relationship we desire. 
that the God of love says over and over and over as you come to me, I will forgive you for your sins. And that is awesome. We embrace Jesus. We walk with Jesus. We live for Jesus. This is chapter two. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. The term little children at the beginning of verse 1 is by no means offensive. John is 90 years old. He's the last living disciple of Jesus. And so he's looking at this house church and seeing people that are in their 60s and their 40s and their 20s and these teenagers. And he's saying to them, my kids, I love you. Here's what I want you to know and to understand. It's like receiving a letter from a beloved senior or a grandparent. That senior in the church, that senior in your life, where you're just like, man, I love that guy so much. When I was in Bible college, um, we were hanging out in the lounge, and two of the beloved professors walked by us, and one of my friends said, those two men just ooze the Holy Spirit. I've never heard that phrase before, but I thought, it's true. Just talking with them, you feel their love, you feel their care, you feel their compassion. These are men who love Jesus and who love the students that God has placed in front of them. And here is the Apostle John, the disciple who Jesus loved. And I can imagine he just cared so much about the people he's writing to. He cares so much about these house churches. And he's saying, let me show you a better way. Let me show you how walking with Jesus changes your life. Let me show you how when you read the scriptures, when you read my friend Paul's writings, when you read about James and what I am trying to say to you, it's going to be life transforming. And then here's what happens. We spend so much time reading the Bible and we spend time listening to sermons and we worship together and we hang out with friends who encourage us to live more godly lives. And then we look in the mirror and we go, you know what I don't like about myself? I don't like how I speak negatively about other people. I don't like that I get angry so quickly. I don't like that the second I'm bored, I pull out my phone and I start looking at screens. I don't like how I use my money because it doesn't seem like it actually helps anything other than myself. I don't feel like I invite my neighbor and my coworker out the way that I should. I know I need to be more loving to my family. And then comes the best news the world's ever heard. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. This word propitiation is a pretty big word, so let me unpack it. Even if you have a different translation like the NIV, it says Jesus is the atoning sacrifice of our sins. A little bit more easy to understand, but still tricky. Here's a paraphrase. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross satisfies the demands of God's holiness. Isn't that beautiful? The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross satisfies the demands of God's holiness for the punishment of sin. You need to say something. So going back to that statistic, one out of three of you were brand new to Ellerslie in the last two years. That's awesome. I hope it feels like you've come home. I hope we as a church have embraced you and loved you well. 
And here's something that is so wildly important to me. Every single week we talk about Jesus. Every week. And it's not just that we talk about Jesus. We talk about how he transforms our life. Yes, the fact that he lived a perfect life, died for our sins, rose three days later, that is the foundation of the gospel. That is the most important part of the gospel. But it's not the whole gospel. Jesus loves you holistically. And we talk about Jesus because he's our perfect older brother who comes and he chases us down. We talk about Jesus because he is the divine healer and he is the one who can heal your bodies now or on the other side of the glory. We talk about Jesus because he is the one who gives you all of your money, inviting you to be good stewards of your money. We talk about Jesus all the time because we believe Jesus impacts every component of our life. We talk about Jesus because we believe he changes everything. And there's this beautiful part of the passage today that happens twice. You see it in 1 verse 9, and you see it in 2 verse 2. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in 2 verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Think about how good news this is. You see, the scriptures say that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have missed the mark. All of us have spoken poorly about others. All of us have done things we shouldn't do or not done things that we said we were going to do. And we fall short. And there's this cosmic courtroom that's taking place. And we are on the defendant's stand. And God the Father says one of two things can happen. Either you can die for your own sins and pay the penalty with your own blood. Or you can take the fact that my son died for you and by his blood shed for your sins, you will be forgiven. And our defense attorney is none other than Jesus himself. And he says, Father, judge, may I have a word with you? You do not take two penalties for the same sin. And my defendant has said that he believes in you. My defendant says that she believes in you and wants to have an eternity with you. And God the Father says, then welcome home. I want to invite the band to come up and lead us in a closing song. So where do we go from here? Second part of our application today. What is one area you want to focus on this week? Just one. Don't worry about all the things that I've mentioned, and I purposely mentioned so many that you couldn't possibly write them all down. But what is one area you want to grow in? So that when people look at you, they might see that person shows evidence of a life completely transformed by Jesus. Perhaps you want to say, um, you and your uh, partner want to say, it's time to have our friend over. We talk about it all the time. We talk about inviting our neighbor over, our coworker, but we just haven't done it yet. Perhaps you're thinking, I talk about people behind their backs too often. It's going to stop now. Perhaps you're saying, I look at my phone too much. And when I'm home, I should be fully present for my kids. And I'm not because I'm glued to this stupid screen. Maybe it's about um, going out with coffee for some, with somebody. Maybe it's about spending more 
concentrated time with your spouse. Maybe it's time that you call up an old friend. Maybe God is putting this kind of niggling in the back of your mind that this is an issue, this is a challenge, this is a place where you want to grow. What is one area that you want to grow in this week so that next week we might say we even more are the evidence of God is visible in our lives? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good news through 1 John. May we be a people transformed because of your work in our lives. God, may we be a people that confess our sins and know that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And God, may we be a people that are transformed so that we might be more like you, so that more people might ask about Jesus and be transformed by the good news. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.